Hi, everyone. Back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting. Unscripted, Peter? I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now over to our episode. Let's go. All right, listeners, welcome back. This is Brooke Gilman here for another thrilling ESEC Lending Insights podcast. And today I have two familiar faces on the podcast, voices for all of you out there. I have Mark McNeil from my team and Mark heads up our US equity and corporate bond trading team out of Boston. Mark, thanks for joining again. I know our fearless leader, Jim, is off dotting the globe. Is that what he's doing? Yeah, I think it's three continents in three weeks is what we're calling this tour. Yes. Well, for probably what felt like 70% of the market that attended RMA last week, everyone knows that Jim was hardly to be found. He was supposedly gearing up for what was two additional weeks of travel throughout the globe. So laying low. What I know about Jim's wardrobe, you can't tell me (laughs) that he was difficult to find. I heard about his lemon shirt on more than one occasion, and it wasn't just on your podcast. Yes. (laughs) News traveled all the way to London on that one. I do appreciate that. And so Matt, thank you for introducing yourself on today's podcast listeners. This is Matt Chesham. (laughs) (laughs) Matt's joining us again, as he does often to give us the latest in data and trends and market performance measurement stats from S&P Global. So welcome back, Matt. Do you think you're our top listener? It's got to be top 10. Yeah, I bet that's probably true. I would imagine I've got some competition. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I was at RMA last week, and as I always joke on the podcast, most of our listeners seem to be friends with Jim. So I hear a lot about that, but otherwise I don't get as much feedback from others. We'll take what we can get. All right. Well, even though we are post RMA, I don't think we'll spend as much time focused on that. Maybe we'll podcast about that here more in the coming weeks. But I think what we can do today is really go through, Matt, what your data shows for Q3. We're post the quarter end and what feels like in a race towards year end at this point. And so I know that I saw some of your headlines. I saw some of the headlines noting that year over year, quarter over quarter, revenues have declined a bit, but yet specials feel strong in some pockets, but yet overall balances are way down. Start as high as you can and let's then ratchet it down into the different areas. And Mark and I can bounce questions off of you and respond where we see similarities or differences. Yeah, sure. So let's get started. The four top headlines that I've got for Q3 2023 really state that quarterly revenues did start to trend lower following some of the recent highs that we saw during Q1 and Q2. US equity revenues started to decline as some of the bigger specials named. Some of the corporate activity linked to those started closing out towards the end of the summer. Asia equities made a bit of a comeback over Q3. They posted a 20% year-on-year increase in revenues. And one of the trends that continued during Q3 that we've seen through the rest of the year is that average fees are quite robust. They're still remaining quite high, but balances have been declining and that's been taking place ever since the end of the spring or the early summer. All the figures that I'm giving you here are really market-wide. This is what we're seeing. So it'd be interesting to see if you guys are seeing the same. But ultimately, from a market perspective, we saw that Q3 generated $3.1 billion worth of revenues, and that was down 7% year on year. Equity revenues were $2.36 billion. They were down 10% year on year. 
fixed income assets are still performing relatively well. Government bonds produced $464 million. That was down 2% year on year. But corporate bonds were still going strong, generated $279 million, which was an increase of 11%. So Mark, Matt just gave all of that in rapid fire. What's your response to any of those key points? What have you experienced trading in the market and where do you think some of that rings true and where might you see less of those trends? Sure. Why don't we start with U.S. equities? So I think Matt touched upon the robustness of the average fee or the performance of some of these top specials. And Matt had four headlines. Here are my three for U.S. equities, the three names that drove tremendous revenue or tailwinds for that average fee. And it was Siri in July. So Siri traded to an average fee of about 30 to 35% and the stock price squeezed all the way up to almost $8. Siri is one of those names that's widely held. So a lot of beneficial owners will participate in that trade. It's a main index equity and typically trades in a range of maybe like 500 bips or so. So to see it move all the way to 30 to 35%, albeit for a relatively short period of time, we're talking about a couple of weeks, a month, that provided a tremendous amount of revenue. And we saw that materialize into the average fee that you would measure really the entire market. As Siri came to a close, ongoing throughout almost the entire Q3 was the trade of the year AMC. So AMC tended to pick up steam going into ultimately the AMC and Ape conversion in late August. And then, of course, we had J&J come along as well. You know, so really it was those two special situation trades that, for my seat, provided tremendous value to securities lending beneficial owners. It really kept trading desks across the street really busy through August. I moved in August. You never hope for a quieter month. You always want a busy desk, but I was ready for things to be a bit quieter. And August was really anything but that. There was really a ton of focus on both Siri ratcheting back a tiny bit and then AMC and J&J. AMC, just to interject, was one of the biggest stock lending trades that I've ever seen. First three quarters of this year, $652 million worth of revenues have been generated by that one name alone. And it seemed to be for the longest period of time, every time you picked up a copy of the FT or the Wall Street Journals, and it was talking about AMC, it was the deal that was going to be prolonged for another month, another month, another month because of all these judicial reviews that were going through and the rubber stamping of all the documentation that needed to take place. So, I mean, it was a brilliant trade, especially for lenders. So could I translate what both of you said? Is it fair then to say when Matt, one of your first headlines, I think, which was revenues have trailed off in Q3 as compared to Q3 of the prior year. Is that what you're comparing it to versus a prior quarter? Okay. But is it really just that AMC ended in August and therefore revenues in September for US specials just fell off a cliff a little bit? And that's really the story here? Yeah, from my perspective, that's exactly what we saw because you had AMC, which was a huge driver of revenues all the way through the year. And you had the J&J ChemView trade that was generating a lot of specials activity and a lot of revenues for lenders. And between August and September, we saw that specials revenues from UX equities dropped by over 60%. I appreciate, Matt, you're looking in the rearview mirror a little bit on the data, but Mark, you're trading in the market right now. So first of all, does that story jive with what we saw in September? I think that it broadly does, but maybe you can give us a little bit more of your insight on that. And how does it feel now a few months post-September? I mean, is that a trend we're still seeing? Is there any real pick back up? And I know that there's been a handful of IPOs in the last handful of weeks. What does it feel like at the moment? 
on the U.S. equity specials front? Sure. No one has better data than Matt. So I did a little bit of homework before the podcast to make sure my data was up to speed. And yeah, the average fees for U.S. equities went from 80, 85 bips all the way down to 45 to 50 bips. So that's a pretty tremendous move. And really, to get to your point, Brooke, it was a concentration of a lot of value in just a few names. So when all those special situations come to an end at the same time, you'll tend to see that show up in performance. So September, the specials market was relatively quietish. EV and IPOs are certainly a bright spot. When the reopening of capital markets and some of the new IPOs, like Kava, Birkenstock, et cetera, definitely provide nice pockets of value. Looking ahead, specials have been a bit muted, but Siri, we're beginning to see the average fee tick up a bit. And that's, of course, tied to the Liberty Media deal. So I think that could be a strong tailwind if we're kind of looking at what could propel or increase fees going through Q4. I would look to Siri because right now we're kind of in the same spot where we were for a lot of September. So we're looking for that next trade, that next tailwind to help move things along. And can I ask a quick question? In terms of those IPO names that you were just discussing, a lot of the demand drivers for those, would you say that's general liquidity? Or do you think that they go into market and perhaps they're slightly overvalued and therefore there's a directional opportunity? Or do you think it might be a mix of both? Yeah, I think it's a mix of both. I think a lot of it depends upon the performance in the initial days of trading. Do you see that stock trade up significantly and maybe it looks like it's maybe a bit overvalued. So I think it's certainly a combination of both. I mean, why we're talking about specials and I don't think Asia's going to take the place of some of these big names that we've seen in the US that have been trading special recently. There has been a lot more specials activity taking place in Asia and the APAC region over Q3 in comparison year on year and for the rest of the year. Really, what we've been seeing is that there's a lot more activity taking place in South Korea. There's a lot of stocks there that are being driven higher in terms of their valuations by some interest from retail investors. And therefore, other investors may feel that those stocks are somewhat overvalued. So there's some directional opportunities taking place. There's a link into what you were saying about the US, the EV sector in Asia and in South Korea in particular is being targeted by some of the short sellers for some of the same reasons that some of the US stocks are as well, from what I can make out. But we've also seen some activity in the household and personal products. That was the most shorted sector over the quarter, followed by North American financial services, which I suppose is still an overhang from what we were seeing in the first two quarters of the year. So I have a question going back to one of your other headlines. I think it was a unique headline or it was just an add-on. But when you talked about balances coming down since the spring, Matt, could you maybe tell us what asset classes you're specifically talking about? What's driving that? I can tell you quite easily because it's pretty much across the board. If you look at the Q3 numbers, across all securities, balances were down 9% year on year. Equities down 10%. Government bonds were down 10%. Even corporate bonds started seeing a fall in balances by 2%. But one thing that I would say about corporate bonds is that I feel that looking at the data and looking at some of the graphs that we've been putting together of the information that we've been getting over the last quarter, it does feel to me that perhaps, although I don't really want to speak too soon, we may have seen the peak of some of the activity taking place in the corporate bond market. It still remains incredibly robust when you look at previous quarters and previous years. But we have reached a peak pretty much in terms of some of the revenue numbers that we've been seeing 
Q1 this year was $298 million in revenues, for example. That fell slightly to $296 million. And then Q3, we're down to $279 million. But they're very small differences, but you are beginning to see a bit of a dip quarter on quarter when you put the numbers together and you can see that there's a bit of a roller coaster effect and we seem to be coming down the other side of the peak but you know that's all linked to interest rates I'm sure and given what's been going on over the last few weeks with higher for longer and many other the central banks taking a bit of a pause for breath perhaps there's not so much to play for in some of those corporate bond positions where everybody was positioning for the next interest rate hike because it was pretty much a done deal for the last 12 months that every month there was going to be a hike and therefore yields were going to go up and prices were going to go down. So Mark, what's your reaction to how the corporates have been trading maybe since the end of spring or beginning of summer? How have you seen that materialize in fee and revenue? Credit has performed really well for us. We've seen average fees generally tick higher going into Q3. And then as Matt referenced, they did essentially top right around the middle of Q3. And we've seen them retreat, albeit by a couple basis points. That being said, I think credit's going to be, from a lending standpoint for beneficial owners, a strong area of performance for the next 12 months at least. And then to provide the proper context, so if you compare the average fee on loan for IG and high yield today versus maybe a month or two ago, it is slightly lower. But if you compare it to 24 months ago, we're up somewhere 60 to 100%. So it's a significantly higher move if you kind of zoom out a bit. So we maybe have peaked in the short run. But you zoom out and you would still say, hey, we're significantly higher from a value perspective than where we were just a couple of years ago. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. It is phenomenal. If you look at the run that corporate bonds have had over the last 12 to 18 months, the fees have more than doubled and the revenues have gone through the roof as well. And I think that there's a lot of value to be had there for beneficial owners that have corporate bond portfolios. I think if you can manage the liquidity risk, then I think you definitely need to get those into your lending programs because I think that it's now or never. If you're not prepared to lend them now when you've got 45 basis points in fees, then you probably never will, to be honest. I mean, I don't really know what more incentive you need. It's incredible some of the revenues that have been generated from some of these names. And I mean, there's still some specials activity that takes place. I mean, 3M companies, like their corporate bonds, they've been trading very special, especially some of the shorter dated ones. And then when we run the top 10 revenue generating bonds every month for some of the snapshots that we produce, the names are very sticky as well. So there is strong demand and that demand has been there for a number of months if not half year periods of time. So if you do have any of those bonds and you are willing to lend them and you can't get comfortable with lending some of those assets, then I think that there's good money to be made there. I know that when I was on the beneficial owner side, we were very active in lending our corporate bonds and we never really have very many problems with recalls or issues with liquidity. As long as you manage the buffers and you look at the liquidity, not just in the cash markets, but in the securities lending markets as well. And then you calibrate your buffers to ensure that they are commensurate to the amount of trading activity that's taking place or the size of your liquidity buffers in those two areas of the market, then I think that you know you can quite easily manage your risk and make some good revenues. Agreed, definitely. And Mark, what's your reaction on the balance is coming off since the spring at kind of a macro level? I guess what I want to know from you is, I know in maybe some instances, we might also see that, but I also know that the reality is we might be positioned a little bit differently than many in the market and our ability to support GC and support enhanced cash 
funding trades and other things. But I also know that there's been a lot of reg cap balance reductions and reporting period balance reductions and other things happening broadly in the market. Do you have much of a view? Do you think that that macro trend is ultimately the knock-on effect of ongoing regulatory capital changes with the bank community? Or do you think it's something else? Yeah, I think that's important to consider and is probably obviously the overwhelming trend of what's more or less playing out on a grander scale. But relative to Q3, I mean, this isn't me talking our book. This is more of an opinion. And what was reported to me as to what we saw take place in the market was, well, one, the S&P was down just over 3% for the quarter. So if indices are down, balances are probably down. Yeah. Two, there was definitely degrossing amongst hedge funds throughout the quarter. You know, that was reported to us by a few of the largest USPBs, low net exposure, low gross exposure. It's no secret. That's widely reported data. So if demand ticks lower and major indices are down, it would be tough for securities lending balances to be higher. So I think those are the two data points or the two major themes, I guess, for what you would point to to why balances are lower. If we see markets trade up 15% or we see gross leverage increase, then we'll certainly see balances come back to where they were in probably the spring. I think the story would be gross leverage and major indices trading off throughout the summer. I think when you look at the economy as well, we seem to be at a bit of an inflection point. Everybody's been waiting for peak rates and it feels like we've possibly got there, but there's no certainty yet. I mean, one of the conclusions that we made was that we felt that going towards the end of Q3, the beginning of Q4, it felt like some of the conviction had come out of the market because it felt like a lot of participants were perhaps waiting on the sidelines before anything was really executed to have a better understanding of where markets would be heading towards year end. And I think if we have a few more months well i suppose once we get past the october november rate decisions then i think that i suppose we've got a few more data points in terms of inflation and cpi moves and everything else then i think perhaps we we'll, might see some of that conviction coming back into the markets because there might be a clearer understanding of where we're heading heading into year end and also you know heading into year end especially for fixed income markets you know for government bonds and everything else that means balances generally go up and that's where they become more expensive as well so we're definitely not saying that this year is not going to be great for revenues because i think it is my only question really in my mind is is it going to be last year, which was the best year since the financial crisis, or are we going to fall just short because Q3 and Q4 are going to be slightly lower than Q1 and Q2. But saying that, if you look at year-to-date revenues to the end of Q3, we're still sitting 7% higher than we were at the same point last year. So $10.15 billion up to the so January to September 2023 versus $9.48 billion January to end of September 2022. So even though Q3 did come off a little bit, we're still trending higher than last year. So it's still looking to be a phenomenal year. Okay. And Mark, what else have we missed? Anything else? Do you have much of a prediction for how you think this year is going to play out? We're seeing volatility pick up a little bit compared to Q3. So I think Q3 was the low point for the VIX index throughout the year. So seeing potentially if there's more volatility in Q4 and you know there's an opportunity for hedge funds to chase performance going to year end, I would expect to see balances pick back up. You've told me in the past, or at least my memory is, is that you've made comments about how hedge funds sometimes, depending upon where they are in their year and where their performance is, they might be reluctant to sort of put new risk on towards the end of the year because they don't want to, you know, no pun intended, risk it. 
Do you have any feel for how their performance is overall this year and whether they're going to be fighting to eke out that performance as we get closer to year end or whether they're sitting pretty, so to speak? And to be clear, I am parroting that information. Okay, well, whomever is your parrot out there, then we'll give that person credit. (laughs) Yeah, what I've heard is that it's been a good year, not a great year. So I would think it could go either way. If an opportunity presents itself, I'd expect to see risk on. But right now, when I mentioned that gross leverage and net leverage are lower, it's kind of risk off. So not to say there won't be a catalyst for risk on, but I think something would need to change for things to pick up the next two and a half months or so. Okay. Got it. All right. Maybe we'll podcast again before the end of the year. Matt, I'm coming over to your neck of the woods in December. So I don't Uh, know, maybe I'll threaten to do one in person with you, or if not, we'll pick it back up in January where we can actually rewind the clock. And maybe we should do a podcast on sort of how our predictions played out, go back and find all those prediction moments and put them all in a hat and see which ones did well and which ones didn't. Yeah, well, that sounds a good idea. I think we've got to get Jim back for that, though, because I think he's used to making more predictions than me. So just on a numbers game, I think he's yes, going to have more than that That's very true. <laughs> yes, but I'm not really sure. So Jim traveling across the globe three weeks in a row, I'm sort of giving that up over under of another plus or minus three additional weeks before he truly recovers and is willing to podcast with me again. He's a hard man to pin down for these things. But by January, I think I'll be good. Not as hard as Peter Basler. (laughs) That's true, actually. I don't know if you guys noticed, but I lost most of my voice last week at RMA. And so I'm still in recovery mode, but I'm here on the Monday following doing what I'm committed to, which is speaking on the mic with all of you. So I I think your next next podcast should be what were the top five pieces of gossip that came out of the RMA? I think All right. you get well, loads of listeners for that one. I need some friends to do that with me then. So I'll have to, Mark's, I'll have Mark's to uh, smiling. Mark's call smiling. around. He's got some gossip. But... <laughs> Maybe not gossip, Mark, but do you have one or two key takeaways from RMA that you want to share? Maybe we'll preview it. Sure. Well, Brooke, I was going to say, I think you showing up to the podcast today is just giving the people what they want. So oh. let's, let's be clear <laughs> about that. You have a duty. Right. Yeah, I do. Um, I do. I take it seriously. Yeah, the RMA was really constructive, very productive. Obviously, it's always great to see familiar faces. I think that, you know, you referenced it when you talked about forces on balances. There's obviously, you want to call it a regulatory issue or, you know, these new rules that maybe everyone's going to adhere to in the not too distant future. I think everyone's looking for a common solution. And, you know, that was probably definitely one of the overarching topics. You know, there's a lot of thoughtfulness that went into that. Not always the funnest topic, obviously. But it was exciting to hear some of the different ideas batted around. Definitely good. And it's worth noting, because I want to at least be somewhat newsworthy or topical to our industry, that the final rules on 10C1 did come out this past Friday, the day following RMA. And so we and the rest of the industry are reviewing the final rule set in detail. So I'm sure there's a forthcoming podcast on that too, which we can fill you all in on when we are ready for that in the near term. So Stay tuned, more to come. We're going to keep everyone's commutes filled with the wonderful musings of the securities lending industry. Yeah, with the joys of more reporting. I mean, that's definitely something that we've already started looking at it. We've got an action team going yeah. from last Friday okay. when the news came out. So feel free right. to Do to they have us. like matching orange vests? I mean, are they sort of in, in Yeah, we've got, in we got uniform, full team colors. Team? Yeah, we've got full team colors going. All right, good. Okay, well, maybe I should find out who's on your action team and podcast with them. 
yeah, well, I'm happy to make some introductions. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, listeners. And we'll be back soon. As always, if you have feedback, do let us know. Thanks all. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you with something interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities. And friends, don't forget to subscribe to ESEC Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. Thank you for listening.